The Causes and Effects of Budgeting Under Threat This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Republicans have used the debt ceiling deadline to extract concessions from Democrats, and it's not the first time. Why does the federal government budget under pressure in these high-stakes showdowns, especially when Republicans control part of Congress under Democratic presidents? And why do the imposed spending constraints not last? This week, I talked to Josh Shooter of Georgetown University for a special edition. He's working on a book manuscript about the history of congressional reforms. We take a deep dive into the context and history for the debt limit showdown. Rather than review the day-to-day dynamics of the current struggle, we review what has happened under previous standoffs and agreements, why Republicans take budgeting to the brink, and the legacy of the Budget Control Act from the last time they won. We also set the context of the current House, including threats to Kevin McCarthy's speakership, why the discharge petition doesn't seem to work, and how much Congress has reformed to satisfy the holdouts. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. All right, so give us a little bit of a lay of the land uh, regarding budget negotiations kind of outside of the context of this debt ceiling deadline. What would things look like uh, with a new Republican majority in the House uh, and a Democratic president? Uh, and, and should we expect kind of major changes in the trajectory of spending and taxes when something like that happens? Uh, you absolutely should. Um, one of the things that happens, especially when you have the divided government, is that you find that it's better not to have the presidency in many cases. Um, appropriations and revenues lie with Congress. Um, the president can't just enact whatever he wants like he can in a parliamentary system. Um, so, so the fact that Congress sort of drives these debates is not too surprising. Um, and the fact that this is a non that the non-majority nature of Congress kind of puts a lot of power in the minority's hands. And that's only amplified by the filibuster. Um, so what we find is that when you have a divided government kind of budget showdowns, uh, the president's party does pretty poorly. Um, we saw that under Obama. We saw that under Trump. Um, and we are going to see that under Biden, where Democrats will probably offer more concessions just to raise the debt ceiling um, than you would see under a unified Congress. Um, and technically, right now, we have a split Congress. But in reality, Democrats don't really control either chamber when it comes to these sorts of things. Um, from a raw institutional baseline, uh, you're looking at a Republican House. Uh, you're looking at a chamber that needs nine Republican votes in order to advance any budget, actually appropriations type uh, style legislation. Um, and so from a raw institutional baseline, you're looking at significant changes from the 117th to 118th Congress. And is that uh, something that is always worked out in a big bipartisan negotiation involving the president eventually? Uh, or are, are these do these divided government situations sometimes uh, uh, go in kind of a normal, more appropriations uh, driven process? Well, it kind of depends on when you're talking about. Right? So if you were to talk about these sort of bipartisan agreements through a budget like in the 1980s, like, yeah, uh, it might not involve the president as, as centrally as you would otherwise. Um, for the last 10 to 20 years, though, it has. Right. The president has been the central negotiator, um, been far more. Uh, influential on budgets than he has been in previous appropriation cycles. Um, and part of that's due to the fact that the parties are more willing to play hardball on appropriations. Uh, they're more willing to play hardball on budgets. Um, we don't, we're well past the era when there are bipartisan budgets through the normal budget process. Um, and so that's really uh, allowed the president to kind of take the mantle as party leader of his particular party and the opposition kind of turns their party leadership to craft negotiations. And that's been the default mode of negotiation for uh, over a decade now, and arguably for the last 20 years in many respects. 
So why uh, is does there seem to be a party difference with kind of willingness to go to the mat on these uh, debt ceiling uh, negotiations and kind of use of the the debt ceiling to force concessions, or uh, are Republicans right and and Democrats do use this uh, nearly as much as they do? Well, it's it's a it's a bit different, right? So um, Republicans seem to do this with Democratic presidents because it works, right? I think one of the things that uh, it's particularly uh, useful for Republicans is that this issue animates conservatives a lot, right? They are the ones with the most political incentives to hold the president accountable. They're the ones that have also like lost the most when it comes to actually pol- actual winning po- actually winning policy, um, and. So- so it animates them to a huge degree. Um, they have not gotten what they want. They won't hold the president accountable. So they often enforce this or try to enforce this by forcing their party leaders into a position where they have to hold the debt ceiling hostage, essentially. Um, now, whether they actually want to achieve this or actually achieve much um, or not is sort of up in the air. Um, some of these results and some of these negotiations often don't give them exactly what they're looking for. Um, but nonetheless, uh, for conservatives, it seems to work. It gives the appearance of them holding the president accountable. And for them, that's a huge, huge indicator of what they want. Um, when it comes to Republicans, uh, when Republicans are in charge, uh, Democrats do similar things, but it's a bit different. Um, one of the things that's been very, very difficult for uh, Republicans is just getting the votes to raise the debt ceiling, right? You have uh, this kind of animated, uh, this portion of the Republican conference that is ideologically against debts deficits that's still part of the negotiation now whether they actually care about these things is a debate for a different time but when these votes come up to the floor they do talk about them in terms of debts fiscal restraint fiscal responsibility etc um so they don't have a majority to raise the debt ceiling by themselves where democrats did um and that's a huge huge difference so when republican leaders would come to nancy pelosi and say like hey we need some votes to raise the debt ceiling like Absolutely, Nancy Pelosi is going to ask for some concessions. Like, I, I, we're happy to help you raise the debt ceiling if, right, you go along and help us out with this sort of thing. Um, and that's a different style of negotiation, right? Democrats have the votes to do these things, um, and Republicans hold it up and kind of obstruct. Republicans did not have the votes to do these things to raise the debt ceiling, and so they had to ask Democrats. And when you when you come to Democrats, you have to pay the Pied Piper, so to speak, um, when it comes to passing and getting these bills off the floor. So, um, yes, Democrats used it, but it's different political circumstances. So the parties seem to have uh, learned different lessons from past uh, debt ceiling negotiations, and part of it might just be that something very different happened in in 2011 and 2013 um, when Republicans tried to use uh, these deadlines to gain concessions. So take us back uh, to to that era and tell us what happened and kind of how the parties interpreted it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So in 2011, they actually won something, right? Uh, In 2011, this is where we had the agreement, the massive budget agreement. Um, the one that started the, that put in place the super committee, quote unquote, that was going to find $1.2 trillion in budget savings. Um, there's some sort of uh, agreement that was yet to be determined. Um, it created, it put in place the budget control act caps uh, that were going to be put in place in 2013 to 2021 if nothing happened. And so that would have been an automatic sequestration of, of outstanding appropriations across the board, evenly split between defense and non-defense. Um, and so in 2011, they actually won stuff. In 2013, they didn't really win stuff for holding up the debt ceiling. In fact, um, this was a kind of full, full capitulation. Uh, if you remember in 2013, the debt ceiling was kind of uh, you know, round up and, and, and 
collected in the big, broader budget debate at that particular time. Uh, this is when Republicans were refusing to support government funding unless they defunded Obamacare or repealed Obamacare. Um, that did not work. What ended up happening is that as soon as the debt ceiling came up to the actual brink, uh, Congress moved very quickly just to raise it. Right, And so they didn't win much other than the appearance of, like again, holding the president accountable. Um, very effective for people like Ted Cruz, for example, who's the one filibustering one of these things, um, but broadly not very effective for the majority party in the House. John Boehner, for example, did not think this was a fantastic thing um, and probably wished that it didn't happen. Um, but again, what the parties learn is that this is a leverage point, right? It's a piece of legislation um, that is very, very important. It's a must pass. And it is a point at which a partisan minority or a partisan opposition can use to hold presidents accountable. Um, and so that's been um, that's been going on with increasing frequency in 2011. Um, and I would say, like, it's different now than it was in previous iterations. Like the debt ceiling has always been sort of a partisan issue, right? Um, for example, um, the history of the debt ceiling is very partisan. Both parties have politicized it. Um, majority of the opposition party almost always refuses to vote for this thing. And that's been true since at least the 1950s, right? So that part is not unusual. Um, but the fact that they're willing to use it and take us all the way to the brink of a debt ceiling default is far more hardball than it has been in previous iterations and previous decades of this particular policy. So was there kind of a new regime started in 2011 or, um, you know, was it just an extension of what uh, the parties had done earlier? And in particular, is there kind of a dynamic from 1996 uh, from the previous um, uh, Clinton administration and Republican Congress uh, that that they were kind of basing it on? Right. So again, it's, it's a yes and a no. Right. Um, back in the 1950s, we had that um, we had a few instances where the debt ceiling was used to create policy changes. Right. So, for example, my colleague Laura Blessing points out an instance in 1957 where raising the debt ceiling was coupled with with deep cuts to appropriations in the Air Force. Um, there's some economists that believe that those cuts were so deep that it actually helped cause the recession in 1957, 1958. Um, so the fact that the debt ceiling is being used to accomplish other policy goals is not that unusual. But again, it's different now than it was in previous eras, right? Um, when partisan really started to ramp up in the 1980s, you saw the debt ceilings being used to um, create other types of budget and fiscal constraints. Um, so for example, in 1985, we had a budget standoff between the Reagan administration and the Democratic House and the Republican Senate, right? Basically, Congress did not like what the president was proposing, right? So they tried, they had to raise the debt ceiling. The House passed the debt ceiling increase. The Senate attached a whole different piece of legislation as an amendment to that, that was eventually what was called Graham Rudman Hollings, right? This is the official, this is the first sort of like budget sequestration and basically said, if Congress does not find policies that meet the target deficit goals in the next six years, sequestration of, a pro of uh, discretionary bills uh, will occur, right? And so that was our sort of like first real uh, jump into debt ceilings being used for budgetary constraints, right? Remember, debt ceiling is just increasing the overall amount of money we borrow, not actually changing the amount of money we spend, right, on a year-to-year -year basis. Um, so that's when it starts getting linked. And then when you start to see like a lot of actual partisanship and and, and Increases in partisanship, you see uh, more threats to the debt ceiling. Like Gingrich, for example, threatened not to raise the debt ceiling unless Clinton conceded to demands. Uh, Democrats' opposition to raising the debt ceiling became more hardened under President Bush. Um, and so we have uh, this current period bubbling for a couple reasons, really. Um, first, partisan means maximizing 
the increase in partisanship means maximizing legislative leverage to win extractions or simply make it difficult for the opposition. Right. So um, they accomplish many policy and political goals for uh, for the opposition when in an extremely partisan environment. And second, the organization of Congress makes brinksmanship more likely. Um, it's not unusual for ideological outliers to have unreasonable budgetary demands in exchange for in, in increasing or doing sort of routine policy things. Um, but under previous eras where party leaders were not the sort of sole deciders, they just were ignored more often, right? Committee chairs would simply move forward with a bipartisan uh, bipartisan coalition. It's like, well, if all my members aren't going to help me, then I'll just find some members who will accomplish what I want. Um, the current process gives these ideological outliers much greater leverage and negotiations. Um, the party leaders want to appear as effective champions for their conference. And so they wait until the absolute last second, until all avenues are completely exhausted before they finally concede anything. And so this sort of style of negotiations that we have in Congress and the organization of the institution almost encourages brinksmanship because party leaders have to listen to the wings of their party, or at least give them some sort of credence if they want to maintain their position as the leaders of that particular conference. So you mentioned that in 2011, uh, Republicans won these uh, budget caps uh, that we operated under uh, thereafter. Um, but of course, we 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 broke the caps, uh, and the parties agreed uh, to to change them. So why uh, weren't they able to stick? Why didn't Republicans go with their their victory, so to speak? Um, and 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 if you look back on it. Was there really a change in the trajectory of spending that we can attribute to the, to that moment? Um, or was this sort of a hollow victory? Well, it changed, but it changed really briefly, right? So if you look at the deficit projections and the debt and the debt projections over at CBO over the course of those years, when you see sequestration and the budget caps go into effect in 2013, you do see a reduction in overall deficits, right? This, this would have been amazing to see, right? And in, in 2009, 2010, CBO is projecting like incredible de budget deficits for as far as the eye can see. Sequestration goes in, into effect. And for about three or four-ish years, you see decreases in the overall budget deficits. So there was a budgetary impact that did reduce spending overall. Now, what kind of effect does this have on the overall budget picture? Well, very little, right? I mean, when you talk about discretionary spending, you're talking about $1.4 trillion or so out of a $5 trillion budget, right? So you're like, oh, well, we'll, we'll reduce that $1.4 trillion by $130 billion, for example, or whatever it may be that particular fiscal year. Well, that's not very much when you're talking about 5 or $6 trillion, right? And it's also not the programs that are creating debt and deficits, right? So despite the fact that budget deficits did decline very slightly over those four years where the budget caps were really sort of holding down discretionary spending, um, it did very little to affect the overall spending levels. In fact, um, overall money spent relative to GDP was still higher in those during those years than it was in the previous 50 years, for example. Right? So all the budget caps really did was kind of constrain discretionary spending while doing nothing to actually address the big programs that are driving deficits and debts um, moving forward. And they didn't stick because they were no longer politically useful, right? Um, Republicans couldn't hold to those particular um, numbers. They didn't have the votes to pass bills under those uh, under the budget caps. So we continually just came back and revised them every two years. 
and toward the end of uh, President Trump's tenure, we were revising them to massive levels. I mean, we were going, we were, we were sort of catching up to where we, to the money that we had lost the previous four years. Um, so they didn't stick because the political purposes for them had basically stopped. So um, I would just leave it at that. And yeah, well, part of the context there was that there was, I don't know if there was an expectation, but there was at least a, a hope that there would be some kind of a grand bargain between uh, for addressing the real um, roots of, of high deficits um, with through tax reform uh, and reforms of entitlement programs. And part of what seems to have happened is that those those hopes <laughs> are entirely gone. So uh, what what happened there? Why? How did we constrain this debate uh, to, to just talking about uh, discretionary spending? Well, you know, these are I mean, as you well know, these are the third rail of politics, right? These are these are career killer positions, right? Everybody likes to say they want to fix the deficits and the debt until they realize that you have to raise taxes and cut benefits, right? Um, and that's really the, the nuts and bolts of it. There's this sort of like inaccurate but widespread belief that the budget can be fixable by simply raising taxes on the rich and cutting programs like foreign aid, right? Like if we just got rid of those programs and just did these to the like the super, the ultra wealthy, the budget would balance. And the, the reality is that there's not nearly enough money to do that. Um, the tax increases that you have to do in order to get anywhere close to enough revenue would have to be very widespread. Um, the, the benefit cuts that you would need to accomplish, like actual savings in Medicare, Medicaid, um, Social Security, are actually very widespread and would be, be very real changes to people's lives, like raising the retirement age, for example. Um, so these are really painful things to do, right? And you have to do both, right? Doing just one really isn't that plausible. If you're only going to raise taxes, that's going to be a big tax increase. If you're only going to cut spending, that's going to be effectively gutting these entitlement programs. So what you have to do is kind of you have to do both, right? And until we find a majority who's willing to raise taxes on themselves and cut their own benefits, it's going to be extremely hard to do. Um, so when we talk about the kind of grand bargainers, we're really talking about this you know, realm of possibility that doesn't take politics into consideration for the most part. Um, there's this idea that members should do the right thing. And doing the right thing is, is well and good. Don't get me wrong. I think members should stand up for causes that they believe in. Um, but doing the right thing also means ignoring constituents. It also means severing the representational link. It also means uh, failing to take into consideration the impact that it'll have on their lives to, in order to quote unquote, do the right thing. Not saying that this shouldn't happen in certain circumstances. There are obviously cases where it should. But I think that the sort of idea is thrown around far too casually um, and done more so outside of Congress than inside. The people inside Congress have real ideas of what kind of pain this would cause. And that's why they're very sort of resistant to ideas of these major grand bargains getting off the floor. So the debt ceiling um, has sort of brought forward uh, the discussion of at least the overall uh, levels of spending, maybe in a few categories, um, but we still have a end of September deadline um, for actually uh, funding the government. So how much is it likely that, let's say, everything worked out here, the parties came to agreement in as most specific terms that they could, is that going to minimize conflict uh, in, in September? And, and what will be the, the big fault lines afterwards? That's a great question. And there are different schools of thought on this, right? And I, I kind of break them down to the politics camp and the process camp, right? The politics camp looks and says like, well, look at look where we'll be in September. We'll be in the same place, right? We'll have Republicans in the House. We'll have 51 Democrats in the Senate. Repro appropriations bills to pass spending or a budget agreement will still require 60 votes. 
right? Um, Democrats are still going to hate the non-defense cuts. A sizable portion of Republicans are still going to hate voting for spending bills, generally speaking. So basically, the fact that nothing's changed means we're headed for a shutdown, right? And the fact that we're having these talks now is not going to prevent or sort of sidestep that reality a few months from now. So that's the politics camp. It's very pessimistic, right? Then there's the process camp, right? And the process camp will look at the sequence of things of how these budget negotiations normally go and how we spend money in the United States. And they'll say like, well, if we get a budget agreement now, then we have budget numbers that the appropriators can then work on, right? In other words, you've just cleared the first hurdle, first very, very important hurdle of the budget and appropriations process, right? And once you clear that first hurdle, once appropriators have a number, they can actually write bills with real numbers in them, right? And appropriators can write legislation to whatever number you want, right? Or, or whatever, whatever, in this case, whatever number you don't really want, but they can still write that legislation and present it to the chambers for them to pass or um, reject. And the problem is most of the time in most recent budget history is that appropriators have not had numbers to write, right? They've, they, no budget has been around. They don't have any sort of agreement on how much discretionary spending we're going to have in a given fiscal year. So there's nothing to do, right? They write these fake bills with fake numbers, knowing that the real numbers need to be negotiated. And it's sort of like placeholder legislation. Um, so getting through that first wicket, that clearing that first hurdle is a very, very important step. And September might look a little bit more optimistic, knowing that you have a budget number and things could be a little bit more routine. And honestly, I kind of land in that second camp. I don't think you're going to ever find a system where you're going to get on-time appropriations anymore. That's just not what we do. No, Congress is not going to hit that September 30 deadline. It's just not in the cards. Um, there's still big differences on those 12 appropriations bills. Uh, labor, HHS, education bill, that's still very partisan. Um, you know, there's still a lot of concerns about how large the defense budget's getting among Democrats. Um, these are going to be struggles, but um, it's better to have a number than not. Um, so I think it's not going to be perfect, but it's more ideal um, than, the, the, than the situation where you have no number and you're going through this all over again from scratch. So Democrats had been hoping uh, that uh, they would get some moderate Republicans to side uh, with them uh, and use a, a procedure, uh, a discharge petition uh, to uh, get a debt ceiling, uh, a clean debt ceiling or an almost clean debt ceiling um, on the floor in the House. So this seems to always come up, although they they added some, some additional procedure this time, um, but it never seems to work. So why does it always come up and then why doesn't it ever work? Well, if there was going to be a bill or a discharge process that was going to work, it was going to be this discharge process. This was like, I don't, if I'm a procedure geek. And so I, I totally geeked out on this particular thing. This was like a shell bill that was going to be amended through statements put into the congressional record after the fact. I mean, I was, I was like, this is, this is just one heck of a procedural innovation. Right. But that aside, it's never going to work. Right? Discharge positions just don't work very often. Um, and they don't work because they're not very effective devices. Right. I mean, they're just extremely cumbersome. They're very, very difficult to do. Um, and that's on issues where it's sort of well suited. And what's a so, for example, what's a well suited issue? Well, it's an issue that Congress hasn't addressed or that the majorities failed to bring up that there's a majority for in Congress that doesn't have like a strict deadline attached to it. Right. So, for example, like reauthorizing the Exxon Bank, uh, addressing immigration, uh, talking about campaign finance reform. These are issues where Congress, if they don't act, quote unquote, don't act, they 
the majority can get can get on board with those particular programs and reauthorize them or go and change them in some particular way. Um, for an issue that has a deadline as hard and as uh, devastating as the debt ceiling, this is a nightmare, right? Because the all the time requirements that are required in order to reach a discharge petition that could get a vote on the floor in time, it's just very, very difficult to do. You have to collect enough signatures. It's got to wait for seven legislative days. It has to be called up by the speaker within two days of that particular thing. And then you have to have those 218 votes on the floor, right? Not to mention you have to have an agreement, right? It's extremely hard to have a debt, a discharge petition for a legislative bill that has not been agreed upon. And that's essentially what Democrats are trying to do right now. They're trying to create, find enough signatures to pass a bill that has yet to have any sort of negotiation between Senate leaders and moderate Republicans in the House. Um, the other question is, do these moderate Republicans have enough votes in order to clear this particular thing? Does Don Bacon or Brian Fitzpatrick have five or six votes in their pocket? Like they haven't demonstrated that yet, um, nor have they demonstrated that they're negotiating with Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer in any real way. So that's extremely difficult to do. Um, but the reason it's probably not going to work this time and almost definitely not before the the, ex, the Treasury X date is because they're being undermined by President Biden. <laughs> President Biden seems to be negotiating in good faith at the moment. Um, it seems that uh, talks have been advancing. Uh, both sides appear to be walking back many of their very hardline stances that they had even just a few days ago. Um, and so if you're a Republican, moderate Republican and talks are advancing and it looks like you're going to get some concessions, you have no incentive to go and sign on to a discharge petition. Um, and really, the reason you have no incentive is because party leaders will end your career if you do these sorts of things. Um, the amount of pressure that members face on a discharge petition is fundamentally different than any other vote that you're going to have. Um, Members and, and party leaders, they often are okay with you not voting for a piece of legislation, right? You don't support the party's policy goals because your constituency or political problems, that's fine. That's totally acceptable. But where it draws a line is you're going to give the floor to the opposition. Like that is not okay, right? And that's a surefire way for you never to receive a good committee assignment, to lose your campaign financing and resources back in your district, to lose the support of leadership in terms of the party network. It's just going to be a devastating decision. Um, so they face a ton of pressure right now and very little incentive at the moment to sign on to this particular petition. So when uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, could barely win the speakership after many votes, uh, he agreed to some uh, changes in rules and conference rules and uh, even gave some uh, rules committee seats to some Freedom Caucus approved uh, members uh, in exchange for these these final votes that he needed to be speaker. Uh, and there was talk that this was uh, somehow handing over the, the speakership to this faction or that it was creating a weak speakership. But it doesn't seem to have turned out that way so far. So, um, you know, are these rules changes, uh, these new rules committee members, are they having any effect yet? Uh, and why is it that it doesn't seem to have weakened the speakership so far? Well, th their effect, yes and no. They've had an effect, in, but it's not necessarily in the operation of the institution, right? So it's been far more political than procedural, in other words. Like the functioning of the House has largely not changed. Right. You're still seeing massive omnibus bills. You're seeing closed debate and deliberation on the floor, except for a, with the exception of one bill, right, a single bill. Um, you're seeing lots of legislation crafted 
and pulled together in the speaker's office, the way the house is functioning right now is basically unchanged, right? We are, we have not seen any deviation in that politically. Uh, we've seen a much slower pace of legislation in the house, much more deliberative in terms of like how, how quickly, how much legislation we're going to pass in a given week. I mean, it appears that conservatives are using their seat, not to change how the house operates, but what it considers. And so they're basically using this as leverage to against McCarthy to get what they want, more of what they want into legislation that the House considers. Right. Um, Stephen Smith had a, a really good point about this when the reforms actually came down and the agreement that McCarthy had with all of these conservative members um, finally was uh, made light uh, and made, uh, brought into light. And he basically argued that. Uh, this wasn't conservatives trying to really reform the institution at all. It was really trying to take hold of the reins of power within the institution. Um, in other words, they're rather rather they're trying to use the process to their political ends as opposed to sort of being run over by leadership. And that seems to be very true so far. Um, so in terms of how the House operates, like very, very, very little difference, if any at all. Um, but in terms of how strong conservatives are within that negotiation, within those bills that do come to the floor, it seems like they do have more weight than they had in the, in the past. So there was also talk that uh, this was just going to be a few weeks of a speakership or that it would always be under constant threat uh, because it only took so many members to, to try to uh, do an effort to remove the speaker. Um, where are we on that? Is McCarthy's speakership, uh, how, how threatened is it? Um, is it uh, something that, that once it developed uh, would, would come to pass quickly? Uh, and would it change anything if McCarthy doesn't make it through uh, this Congress as speaker? That's a, it's really tough to say at this point. I think uh, one of the things that's been a little surprising is how effective McCarthy has been. Um, he's been very, very uh, skilled, it, it appears, to bring together a very, very very, very fractured caucus, very, very slim majority and able to kind of usher legislation through. So I think many people are a little bit surprised um, that he's been as effective as he has been, um, at least so far. Um, one of the things that is kind of like hanging over his head is this motion to vacate. And I think this is really not that big of a deal. Um, I think a lot of people, the press makes a huge deal out of this, but it's not going to be triggered, at least in a way that removes, actually removes McCarthy from the speakership. Um, first, if anybody's going to trigger it, it's going to be the House Freedom Caucus or a lot of very conservative Republicans, right? Um, anytime that you have that, you're not going to have one. I don't think you're going to find that a majority of the Republican Party is going to be on board with that particular motion. And so if they wanted to depose uh, Kevin McCarthy through this particular uh, mechanism, you're going to have to get Democratic votes. And Democrats are probably not going to be on board with a potential Jim Jordan speakership, right, which is kind of where that group is probably headed. Um, so it's very, very unlikely that this is going to happen um, through any sort of mechanism like the motion to vacate. Um, under what circumstances does McCarthy lose the majority of his conference? That's tougher to say, right? And it's tougher to say because right now, Kevin McCarthy has been very effective at passing messaging bills, right? These are bills that kind of collect the entire conference behind a particular policy. Now, these policies are dead. They're never going anywhere in the Senate. They're not policies that President Biden would ever sign. They're simply there for political purposes. And that the Republican Party has been, at least so far, capable of been doing, right? capable of doing. The harder decisions are going to be when you have to start taking these policies all the way to the finish line, when you have to take them all the way into becoming law. Um, and so what we haven't seen yet so far is how is Kevin McCarthy going to manage legislation that into to take legislation from a bill into law when that bill is not something that his conference wants at all, right? 
So that's going to be a much, much di more difficult thing to do. And it was the thing that was the uh, the ultimate sort of killer of John Boehner's speakership. It was the thing that killed Paul Ryan's speakership. It was this must-pass legislation that had to become law that they put on the floor despite the fact a significant chunk of the conference did not want that legislation. So basically, the real tests have yet to come. Um, and once that happens, could McCarthy lose the a majority of his conference? Yeah, they could, right? And if that's the case, he'll, he'll step down just as John Boehner did, just as Paul Ryan was kind of preparing to do at the end of his speakership. Um, and that's how he'll lose it. Now, when he loses it, I don't know. Um, and I think in September, we'll have a much better idea of whether or not he's going to have a second year of his speakership or a second term of his speakership than we do right now. What about on the, the positive side? You mentioned that uh, he, he may have been more effective than, than people expected. If he does get through this after some unified party first messaging votes with winning concessions, not really having to give up much, um, you know, is our impressions of him going to, to change uh, quickly? And, and should they? Um, or are we maybe underestimating uh, the strategy of the the extremists that they may have actually had um, a plan here uh, that that may work better uh, than than people thought. Yeah, I mean, certainly some of the extremists had a had a really good plan, right? Um, the people who were holding out against Kevin McCarthy, uh, the folks like Chip Roy, for example, they got a lot out of that deal. Um, there are a lot of people who took who did very very well. Now, what Kevin McCarthy has been able to do has been very, very skilled, in my opinion. I think he's taken a page out of Nancy Pelosi's playbook and and done it well. He's he's mimicked it really well. Um, he's balancing the interest of his caucus through sort of what central what I would call centralized lawmaking, right? In other words, you bring a bill up and you give something to a little bit a little bit of something to everybody during a legislative in in a piece of legislation or during a legislative week. Um, so Pelosi did this all the time when it was reauthorizing FISA. She also gave progressives two immigration bills on the same sort of. Uh, on the same week uh, when she had to impeach Trump. She also repealed the uh, Republican uh, state and local tax deduction provisions that were in there that were really uh, of a major concern and of, on Pelosi's moderates. And she also passed the USMCA, the NAFTA 2.0 bill that had been sitting out in, in sort of no, no man's land for the better part of a year. Um, so she was very skilled at sort of like managing her caucus through this. And McCarthy's taken a similar a similar approach, right? He's, you know, cutting discretionary spending for conservatives and also bringing permitting, permitting reform for moderates. So on that side, I think he's done much better than people expected. Um, but again, uh, we're going to see when the rubber hits the road, when we actually start paying, playing with legislation, that's going to become law, right? When you start playing with live ammunition, it's going to be a lot different because uh, then you're going to have to see how you manage things that are going into law. And that's going to be harder for him to balance. How does he do on the debt ceiling? How does he do on appropriations? How does he do on the Farm Bill, the National Defense Authorization Act? These are all bills that he's going to have to consider. Um, and so we'll have to see what the Republican majority looks like after those things. Are they willing to accept half a loaf on this piece on these pieces of legislation that will ultimately have to be negotiated with the Senate? Or are they going to hold him accountable for things that are largely out of his control, like previous speakers? We'll just have to wait and see. So as you said, the, the usual outcome has been uh, centralized power in the majority party, um, but some of the holdouts uh, to Kevin McCarthy said that they were trying to open uh, the process, especially the amendment process, uh, to, to be uh, more open. And you can sort of see a potential um, uh, meeting of the minds with the minority party and the, the extremists in that 
they may not be very interested in actually passing <laughs> much legislation and they may, uh, you know, want to take a lot of these messaging votes and, and not really care about being put in a bad position. So is there any hope uh, for a, a more open process or was that uh, just the talk that you always hear and we're going to go back to to the to this uh, same process? Well, I'm, I'm a skeptic when it comes to any any promise to open the process. <laughs> I think every speaker promises, uh, except Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi never promised it, probably smartly, um, to uh, at least the second term she didn't promise it. Uh, to, the speakers always promise to open the process and they never deliver, right? That's been this sort of mantra of every single speaker going back to Gingrich, right? Um, we're going to come in, we're going to open the process, allow members to be engaged, and we'll sort of let the process play out. That's an utter lie, right? <laughs> They're just not doing it. Once the political realities of um, opening the process become real, right? And you start to see them on the house house floor, um, the process gets closed down and they try to manage the outcomes as best as possible because that's what most of their members really want, right? They don't want that weird messaging amendment from, or that weird amendment uh, from Mr. Amash from Michigan. Like he's got like different ideas about, um, you know, uh, defense programs than we do, for example. Um, so, I don't think that it's really going to happen, but you know the the kind of real tell will be when appropriations bills hit the House floor. Um, this is a promise that Kevin McCarthy made that appropriations, in particular, will be considered under an open rule. Um, now, this is an invitation for chaos, right? Um, whether or not he sticks to it is going to depend on how his members feel. Um, I think they will be as uh, disturbed by this process as potentially Kevin McCarthy will be after they see the amendments they're going to have to be voted on that they will be voted on in those in those bills um, because don't forget like appropriations is was the last holdout it was the last segment of legislation that had open open amendment processes before the entire thing was shut down um, and the reason that it was shut down was because a bunch of Democrats offered a bunch of poison pill amendments that put Republicans in moderate districts in very very difficult spots and they hated taking those votes um, so is this going to be an open process? We'll find out in a month, right? When these bills come to the floor, um, if they come to the floor under an open op open process. But I really don't see it opening up too much. I think we're going to see the same sort of process that we've seen in the past. Because here's the thing, despite the fact that Democrats and Republicans have very different coalitions, they manage the House similarly. Right? And, they, and that's been a continuation for decades, right? And so, you know, Gingrich just followed... Speaker Wright's uh, path. Uh, you know, Hastert advanced a lot of Gingrich's stuff. He was more strict than Gingrich was. Um, same thing with Pelosi. Pelosi was more extreme than Hastert was. And it's just a sort of continuation. There's an institutional accumulation of power um, that goes and that crosses party lines. And I don't think that it's going to reverse without a serious faction actually wanting to reform the chambers. So we uh, are usually talking about how Congress is doing a lot behind the scenes and you, you're just not hearing about it uh, fr from the media. Uh, and, and that does turn out to be most mostly true historically. And the last few Congresses have been uh, quite productive, even by media standards. But it sure doesn't seem like this Congress is doing very much um, in terms of actually leading to policymaking. Um, maybe we were just waiting for this moment but maybe we'll just see a Congress that enacts a big budget agreement and a farm bill if we're lucky and not much else. How do you how do you see things going and why isn't there kind of grounds uh, for these other paths uh, to move forward? 
Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, what you know, this is sort of the recipe for worst Congress ever. Right? So it's like that's the, the Norm Ornstein wrote an op-ed, um, and I think it was 2013. And the op-ed title was very straightforward. It just said "Worst Period Congress Period Ever." Period. Right, and that that was one of the worst Congresses ever. I mean, there were shutdowns. They got nothing done. Uh, Republicans in the House, Democrats in the Senate, just kind of yelled at one another. Um, President Obama was sort of like, "I don't know what to do with this," and just very little got done. Even by like the sort of behind the scenes politicking that you normally see, very little policy was was made in the 113th Congress. We're sort of in that spot, right? We're sort of in the same place. Republicans have the House again. Democrats have the Senate again. Democrats control the White House again. And you don't see too much uh, uh, opportunity or too many avenues through which they can thread the needle to get policy through. Um they're going to do these things that you just mentioned. They'll pass a farm bill. They'll pass a National Defense Authorization Act. Um, they'll hopefully pass a major budget agreement. But outside of that, it's going to be a lot of more minor legislation, like potentially significant, but much more minor in nature. Um, there are bipartisan majorities, for example, on Ukraine aid. Like if those come to the floor, I would expect them to continue to garner bipartisan votes. Uh, there are bipartisan majorities on things like financial regulations. So if you're like really into deregulating swaps or something, right, there's there's a majority for you in Congress. Um, but this is stuff that does not get front page news. Right. And I think that's the most important tell. Right? We're not doing major agreements. We're probably not doing really major legislation under this Congress. Um, you're probably going to see a lot of um, just politicking and a lot of position taking because with such a small majority in the House and such a small majority in the Senate, nobody really has the votes to push much or push or, or force the other chamber to take on. Um, and that's, you know, standard number one that you need in order to make bills move, right? You need a large majority in either the House or the Senate to sort of force them to take it up. Um, and that's going to be very hard to do in this, in this environment. And what about the, the last Congress? Uh, it, of course, came in with very high aspirations uh, from Democrats to, to pass a lot. Um, then it went through this period where everyone thought it was a, a failure. Um, and then we got a few agreements at the end, um, uh, particularly the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, kind of brought back those historic, historic Congress uh, stories. So uh, with a little bit of distance now, how should we how should we think about it? On the one hand, their big initial enactment, the, the Recovery Act, um, is being called by some Democrats a contributor to inflation. It might have some rescissions in this budget agreement, so may not be holding up that well. On the other hand, the last one that they implemented uh, apparently is now actually going to be two or three times as big uh, as, as initially thought because of the size of that, those tax credits. Um, so, so how should we think about the last Congress's policymaking? Well, it wasn't the New Deal or the Great Society. Let's get that out of the way, right? It's like we, there were a lot of Democrats who are saying that they're like, oh, well, this is the New Deal 2.0 or the Great Society number three or whatever you want to call it. It's not those things, right? It just simply was not on par with those programs, with those Congresses. And that's to be expected, right? You look at the New Deal Congresses, you look at the, the Great Society Congress, they had 300 Democrats in the House, right? In some of these New Deal Congresses, they had 70 votes in the Senate in some cases. It's just, you're never going to come close to that. So, no, it's not compared those programs. I think what is notable is that it was they passed far more liberal policy than you probably would have expected given the razor thin margins in both chambers. Um, the American Rescue Plan, that was a surprisingly uh, aggressive uh, piece of legislation right at the outset of President Biden's tenure. Um, the IRA was 
also uh, a little bit far more liberal than you would have expected. Like you never would have imagined Joe Manchin signing on to $400 billion in climate investment, for example. That was, that was I think if somebody was playing bingo, that wasn't in the cards um, uh, in that particular thing. Uh, but keep in mind, like even by those standards, you know, they are not enduring in the same way, right? Remember the, the, the IRA came out, out of a budget that proposed $3.5 trillion in changes. Um, and what you got is about 400 billion total, right? A little bit more than that. Um, it was far, it was more liberal than you may have expected, but it wasn't kind of like the overall grand scheme policy making that you may have, uh, you may have uh, um, um, thought of when you're thinking like major historic Congress, significant Congress for sure, but not sort of like major historic groundbreaking where shifting the sort of uh, Overton window type policy change. Um, on the other hand, it was a very productive Congress, right? On a bipartisan basis, right? So you had the infrastructure bill, you had COVID relief, you had Juneteenth, you had the anti-lynching anti legislation for the first time in congressional history. Uh, Ukrainian Lend-Lease programs, one of the a huge policy change and one of the first programs we've had since World War II. Uh, the CHIPS Act, first major semiconductor bill um, in order to sort of change manufacturing. Um, the postal reform, right? When I was working on the Hill, postal reform was not something that was ever going to get done, right? And that was 10 years ago. Um, and all of a sudden, postal reform, the post office and its financial problems have sort of been fixed, at least, at least for now. Um, so it was a very busy Congress. It was just more bipartisan in nature. Um, and what actually happened is that CQ reported that the, actually, the partisan unity votes actually ticked down a little bit in the 117th Congress compared to the previous two decades. The first time that there's been a down, a, a decrease in partisan voting uh, for the first time in 20 years. And so that reflected President Biden's emphasis on a more bipartisan approach to Congress. It also reflected Nancy Pelosi's support for that program by putting a lot of bills that he supported that maybe her their caucus didn't overall support didn't uh, like the you know USMCA for example or the salt uh, the salt tax deductions um, his support for those programs actually did have an effect on the overall politics and the and the productivity of that particular institution so I think from a production standpoint, it was pretty impressive, right? From a shifting from a liberal standpoint, it's more impressive than you probably would have anticipated. Um, and it's significant Congress, but but it's probably not a new deal. So I know you're uh, working on a long uh, history of, of congressional uh, reforms. Um, what are the big lessons so far uh, that uh, might uh, inform present day discussions of, of uh, congressional reform? I think it depends on the chamber, right? So we're talking about very, very different types of reforms and very, very different types of places. Um, in the Senate, we're, we're on the cusp of a big change, right? We're, we are sort of, we're waiting for a sizable Senate majority, a unified government for the filibuster to basically disappear. Right. I mean, and it does, the, the Senate majority doesn't even have to be that big, like 54 votes, maybe. Right. Might get you to the point where you can go when we have a completely majoritarian Senate, um, which, by the way, would be long overdue. Holy cow. That thing needs to, the filibuster needs to go. It serves no purpose anymore. Um, so on the Senate side, uh, we're on the cusp of something changing because it's right in line with the type of politics that you see in the Senate. On the House, I would not hold your breath. Right. Um, Republicans were the most poised uh, of the two two parties to really uh, in, in, in instigate or implement change in Congress. Um, and they don't appear ready to do so. Right. That appears to be more like jockeying for political power. Um, and one of the things that I think the reform discussion often misses is that we often think of reform as trying to fix something. Right. So in, in some cases, that's been true. Reform has been focused on fixing an issue. So, for example, in 1880, it was about clarifying the House rule book, reducing like 155 rules into like 
1940 that you could actually understand. In 1946, it was about reducing the complexity of the committee system and making it more um, easy for the, simplifying the committee system so that you only had a few standing committees instead of like 40, uh, 50 standing committees um, in either chamber. Um, but the kind of reform that we're on the cusp of um, is the kind of change that happens only after something breaks. So when you think of the kind of change of let, that you would need in order to get away from the type of centralized lawmaking that we see today, you're talking about like the overthrow of Joe Cannon, which was a reflection of the broken Republican Party that the, the progressive movement basically fractured. Um, you're talking about the, the overthrow of the committee system, which was a reflection of the broken Democratic Party in the mid-1960s and 1970s, um, as more liberals were elected and conservative Democrats were sort of pushed out. Um, this sort of overthrow of like centralized lawmaking is going to emerge from fractured parties. Um, and on the one hand, that doesn't appear to be the case, right? Um, we have very unified parties on some issues. So for example, Republicans are very unified on taxes. Democrats are very unified on social issues and climate change. On the other hand, the parties do show some signs of breaking on some particular issues. And uh, for example, they, they both break on some really basic things. Uh, neither party has a majority to pass budgets today that actually pass appropriations bills. Now, this is budgets are a majority bills, right? They only need a majority in the House and a majority in the Senate to pass a budget in order to start passing appropriations bills. But neither party is even trying to do that anymore because they don't agree on very basic budget problems. Um, neither party is... Uh, they're increasingly divided on defense issues, right? We have more Republicans who are sort of against uh, spying programs and against large uh, defense budgets. Um, same thing with Democrats. Uh, you're starting to see the Democrats sort of fracture uh, on defense issues and defense spending. Um, justice and police programs are starting to fracture the parties in some ways. And so um, I think what you're starting to see is like there's definitely some signs that the parties are getting a little bit more heterogeneous on issues than they were in the past. Um, and while it's clearly not showing up in both studies, because we still have very, very highly partisan parties in Congress, um, I think you are starting to see the stress um, of the parties under centralized management because they do have, they're starting to have very, very different priorities on the left and the right wings of both of these caucuses. Um, and once those do break, I think you will see some of those reforms that you, that you might expect, um, major reforms that change the way the House operates for decades. Um, but when that happens, it's sort of, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, you have to see someone and see legislators and entrepreneurs start to connect institutional change to these sort of like political changes and problems that the parties are having right now. And we haven't seen that yet. So Josh, you work at the intersection of uh, practitioners uh, and academics. Um, so what do you think that uh, practitioners uh, need to learn uh, from uh, academics who study Congress and policymaking and uh, the reverse? What don't we know uh, that, the, that the practitioners know well? Well, I think uh, the first thing that practitioners should learn from the academics is about how the structures affect everything, right? Um, I think one of the big things that uh, practitioners understand very well that academics don't, on the other hand, is how relationships affect everything. Um, so, for example, a practitioner knows like, oh, well, why did this bill get through? It's like, oh, because John and Ben are really good friends and Ben did a thing for John and John did the thing or whatever, right? Um, and it's very simple. It's straightforward. They have a relationship. They're able to communicate. They have a sort of a repertoire of trust uh, built up between the two of them and they're able to get things accomplished. 
Now, the other side of that is they don't see the mechanics of it. Like, why is Ben John's friend, right? It's because John is a committee chair and Ben wants to be his friend. So Ben works really hard to be his friend in order to get things that he wants out of the process. And I think that that's sort of the intersection that is like the, the, the biggest disconnect between both groups. Um, on academics, they tend to see uh, the structure as purely the structure. They look at it in very sequence. And, and don't get me wrong, I love sequence. I love structure. I love rules. But I can also see from a practitioner practitioner side, how relationships help grease the wheels of these structures, right? And on the flip side, I think practitioners could probably, or sorry, uh, academics could take a, a cue from them to sort of understand the social relationships that that are at work here. Um, you know, speakers can't just dictate things to their caucus, right? Um, but they do have a lot of leeway and a lot of advantages in terms of being able to manipulate the process, being able to structure it in a certain way. So their ability to restructure the process is in part and parcel their relationship with their members. And I think that that's lost as well. Um, so I think that that intersection is probably the best, the, the, the best that each part, each group could take from one another. Um, academics could probably better understand how um, individuals and relationships affect the process. And practitioners could probably un better understand how structures really, really do dominate a lot of how these relationships interact. So you also uh, are at the intersection of uh, historians and people who uh, pay a lot of attention to the long history of Congress and often say that actually we have been here before. It's like these uh, other three examples and the people who uh, are have a more journalistic and very contemporary interpretation of what's happening now and uh, want to know what's happening with the, the current leadership and dynamics. Um, what, what about that uh, divide? When when are the, the folks that say this is part of a long trajectory? Um, should we listen to them more? And when are the folks that say, uh, actually, things have really changed and we really need to think about what's happening now in its own terms? Well, I think it's it's funny because those two groups are often the same ones. They're, they're kind of concentric circles in many respects. Um, I, I am very much one of those people that like history does kind of repeat itself in different in different ways, which sounds weird. Um, but I do think there are sort of cycles of this. And we've seen centralizing cycles. We've seen decentralizing cycles. We've seen sort of like we've been here before type stuff. And at the same time, this is all terribly new. Right. Um, we, we know that speakers, for example, centralize power and are very, very influential players within the House of Representatives. Now, the way that Joe Cannon ran things and the way that Nancy Pelosi ran things were very different, but to similar effect, right? Um, and I think that one of the things that we need to understand is that, yes, it does repeat itself, but it's a little different. And I think the speakers that you see today are very much like the czar speakers that you saw at the turn of the 20th century. Um, they are very authoritarian, right? They have a lot of power and influence. Uh, they have a lot of ability to manipulate the process and manipulate negotiations um, to their advantage. Um, but it's very different than what you saw at the turn of the, the 20th century, right, where they controlled committee assignments and they controlled, they literally chaired the rules committee. Um, so on the one hand, I think like, yes, this is all very new, right? Um, the things that we're saying, speakers today have more, for example, control over legislative content than at any point in American history. Right? They have, they write the bills in their office. Um, they literally craft them in their office and then they structure debate in such a way that basically prevents any changes to it. Um, that is extremely centralized when you're talking actual content of legislation. There may not have been as politically powerful as the czar speakers of like Cannon and Reed and all that, but they're still extremely authoritarian. So I think that one thing that we need to take away is that, yes, we are in a similar place, but it's a new similar place. Um, and how it's reformed is going to be sim similar and different. Um, but I think that we're going to see a lot of parallels um, across history as we have before. 
Anything we didn't get to that you wanted to include or anything you want to promote that you're working on now? Well, I think one of the things that we should talk more about is, is legislative norms. Um, and I, I am working on a project right now about it, but it plays a, a really profound role and unfortunately does not get the kind of attention that legislative scholars probably should give it. Um, this was something that was the, the, a big thing to talk about in the 1950s and the 1960s, with the way that norms did it. And we seem to have lost that grasp and we lost that track um, in legislative studies. And we just don't talk about it as much anymore because the old norms that they discussed in the 1950s are dying and dead, right? They've been killed by partisans. And what's been the reality is, is that they're simply being replaced by new partisan norms, right? Um, partisan norms to support the party leader, for example. Uh, partisan norms to always vote for the rule on the House floor, for example. Partisan norms to always vote for the majority leader's priorities, even though you as an individual senator have all of the tools at your disposal to introduce and pass legislation off the floor, or at least force legislation to be discussed on the floor, right? These are also norms and they also structure behavior and they structure the way these institutions operate. They're just extraordinarily different than anything that the 1950s and 60s institutionalists were discussing. Um, and more attention should be paid to that, quite honestly, because it is that intersection between the kind of social interaction relationships that make uh, lawmaking happen inside Congress and the kind of behavioral and structural constraints that uh, dictate how these institutions operate. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. How the House Freedom Caucus Gains Power in Congress. Does anyone speak for the poor in Congress? Are divided governments the cause of delays and shutdowns? Compromise still works in Congress and with voters and the future of the Biden agenda in Congress. Thanks to Josh Huter for joining me. Please check out his podcast, Congress Two Beers In, and then listen in here next time. Mm-hmm.